The following episode is brought to you by the American Urological Association. This special episode comes to you from an instructional course presented at AUA 2023. For more information, including how to claim CME credit or to view faculty disclosures, please visit the AUA University at auanet.org university. Independent educational grant support is provided by Estellas, AstraZeneca, Janssen Biotech, Inc., administered by Janssen Scientific Affairs, LLC, Lanthius Medical Imaging, Merck & Co., Inc., and Pfizer, Inc. Good morning, folks. Thank you for being here on an early Sunday morning. All right. Why is prostate cancer so important? You all know that it's the leading um, solid malignancy among men in the United States and second leading cause of prostate cancer death. And it's a big, it's a big problem worldwide as well. Um, it's controversial because we're always balancing benefit and harm. Uh, finding aggressive prostate cancers early uh, is associated with a survival benefit, but we also want to avoid unnecessary testing, testing-related complications, harms of overdetection and overtreatment of the indolent cancers, of which there are very many. The paradigms change rapidly. New tests come up all the time, um, so we have to keep current on these things. Um, just a little history. Before PSA, we were finding people way too late, right? Later than we could, we could really intervene and help. In the PSA era, we were being indiscriminate, testing, screening everybody, biopsying if the PSA were high, and treating all cancers we found. And this was uh, diluting the main effect, the mortality benefit, with harms of over-treatment and over-detection. The U.S. Preventive Services Task Force came around and recommended against screening in 2012, and this resulted in less screening, so less benefit and less harm. Uh, and we and others, Scott Egner included, demonstrated that it wasn't just the lowest cancers that we weren't finding, it was all the cancers. Um, and, and was probably associated with an increase in, in metastatic disease at presentation. And currently, I would call it the shared decision-making era, where we're encouraging doctors and patients to have discussions about whether to screen. Um, this is the AUA guideline. I'm not going to go through it exhaustively. You each should have a handout. If you don't, I have more up here or more out front with uh, Deb, who's at the front desk there. Um, and we'll go through each of the three uh, panels. Um, now available, and that's it for my talk. I'm going to introduce Scott Egner, who's from the University of Chicago. He'll be talking about prostate cancer screening recommendations. Thanks, everyone, for getting up early. and. Uh, Looking forward to trying to throw some stuff out at you. Uh, under the leadership of Dr. Barocas and Dr. Way through the guidelines, we really restructured the course this year. And I, I just tell you because, you know, that thing at the end where some people give feedback, um, we pay attention to it. And so, you know, tell us what works, tell us what doesn't work. And uh, the obvious goal of the course is just to give you practical info. And I tried to pack in as much as possible and integrate some of the guideline statements that were released within the past week. 
So I always um, think it's really important to throw up disclosures and, and let them sit there for a while rather than whip through. Um, anything that's relevant to the slides I'm going to show you um, were mostly old uh, disclosures. Dr. Baroka showed you the one that's relatively recent. I met one time with a company that has a product, a screening biomarker they're trying to get um, ultimately approved through trials in the United States. These are all of them. Um, working with companies and consulting and doing trials. Um, none of these are particularly relevant for the stuff I'm going to show you, but I still think it's really important for you to see and, uh, and know about. So I've always thought about prostate cancer screening as the good, the bad, and the ugly. Um, there's some wonderful elements of it. When done well, it can absolutely positively save lives, and we've got data to go on. The bad, which we have to own and the primary care docs have to own, is I, I still think we have an uh, epidemic of overdiagnosis and overtreatment. We've come a long way, but we still have a long way to go. And the ugly part are the financial elements of it and the difficulty with implementation science and getting people to do you know, consistently the, the right thing for patients. So absolutely positively, I'll shout it from the rooftops, PSA-based prostate cancer screening can save lives. And you've all seen this, um, a dramatic drop. It's a 50% age-adjusted mortality decrease in the U.S. since widespread screening started. And here, is, here it is by race and ethnicity. And the great news is the greatest um, drop, relatively speaking, is in black men. And so they have the highest incidence and highest mortality, but they also seem to benefit the most when screening was instituted. But I would also be equally shouting from the rooftops that the elephant in the room is overdiagnosis and overtreatment. And we have to always be considering this. And the cool thing is there are practical ways to try to minimize this. We can't eliminate it. I used to go through all the trials. Um, I'm just going to go on the assumption you know all the randomized trials. But the number needed to screen and diagnose to save a life in prostate cancer is analogous to other things that are widely accepted in medicine. The problem, and I say this, you know, sophomorically, but, you know, if the prostate was on our elbow, there'd be no controversy at all, because you'd screen, diagnose, and treat everybody, but we can cause a lot of harm, and it, it you know, we all are aware of that. So, I framed it as 10 tips on how to optimize screening while also minimizing overdetection and sprinkling in some of the guideline statements, some of which are going to be absolutely self-evident and boring to you, but hopefully there's some nuggets and pearls in there that you'll go home to your practice. Stop screening old sick men. It sounds so simple, but there's, there's ways to minimize that above and beyond just, you know, their life expectancy. It's really disturbing how many older men get PSAs. This is data that came out about you know, eight years ago where men in their 70s and 80s were getting screened at a higher rate than men in their 50s. There's data that men with lethal cancers, non-prostate, who are going to die of other causes, about 20% of them get a PSA during that year. I'd like to say we've done better over the last eight years. This is data that's been published recently. We're not. Men in their 70s and 80s are still getting screened at a higher rate than the younger men who are more likely to benefit. What's the average life expectancy for older men in the U.S.? You know, of all men of all health, if you reach 65, the average life expectancy is about 18 years, and it doesn't drop below 10 years until you get to be about 78. 
So there are absolutely men in their 70s and even early 80s that I am perfectly comfortable screening, but there's also men in their 50s and low 60s where I think it's crazy to be screening them. And you need to integrate you know, their overall health with their baseline PSA, their PSA density, what their free PSA is to make smart decisions. And I'll get into some of that a little bit later on screening frequency. Be fair when explaining the risks and benefits of screening. We don't have a ton of time to explain it, but not every man needs to be screened, and it's fair to him to give him a bit of the upside and potential downside. Some people give number needed to screen to save a life. Some people have handouts, videos, shared decision-making. But if you ask men what their doctors told them, not surprisingly, we tend to overemphasize the benefits and not talk about any of the potential downsides. And we have to do better on that. Number three, be familiar with the modified guideline recommendations. And I, in my opinion, this is one of the banner headlines of the new guideline. So no routine screening in men less than 40. But for men that are high, at higher risk, and this isn't every single man who meets this criteria, but you should at least be considering a baseline PSA at some point in their 40s. And I'm going to show it to you a little bit, and I think Dr. Carlson's going to reemphasize it because it's so important and her slides are better than mine, but uh, a baseline PSA is extraordinarily powerful. Clinicians should regularly offer prostate cancer screenings every two to four years. So the last screening guideline took it from one to two years. Based on everything you know about the man, you can extend it even further. And I very regularly tell guys their next PSA doesn't have to be three, four years down the road, and I send it to their primary care doctor. It is absolutely no different than many of us who get colonoscopies, and after your first colonoscopy, they tell you, hey, one year, two year, five years, or whatever the guidelines recommend. So re, you know, personalize that rescreening interval. There's not going to be an algorithm for you. It's not that straightforward. You know, you know all these things and what different levels are denoting specific risks and you can make recommendations accordingly. Always, always, always repeat a newly elevated PSA. This is simple, cheap, and can really minimize unnecessary biopsies and diagnosis of irrelevant disease. So old data, but always worth reiterating. 20 years ago, this is banked blood year over year. Without doing any intervention whatsoever, guys with an abnormally elevated PSA, by whatever definition, you repeat the PSA years later, and 40 to 50% of them have returned to a normal level. So I, every, I, I teach our trainees, don't ever make a change in a screening, diagnosis, or management plan without confirming a PSA, and particularly in the screening setting, where there's a lot of confounders in that prostate and PSA can bounce around. So I typically do it a couple months later. This is a really well done study on repeating the PSA within eight weeks where all men had a biopsy. And interestingly, that variability in PSA, so I'll walk you through the slide. The gray is the distribution of what happened at the repeat PSA. And then the colors are what happened on the biopsy. And I hope you'll agree the purpose of screening is to try and identify grade group two or higher Gleason 7. That's the red line. And so interestingly, the repeat PSA, your highest yield is when that repeat PSA is exactly the same, meaning it's real. But if it goes down a lot or if it goes up a lot, there's some noise in there. 
and your yield is much, much lower, and you can see it in that data. This used to be done routinely. I'm kind of embarrassed to say two of my friends from, from training are here, but we handed out Cipro like candy during residency. Literally, guys would come in with an elevated PSA, and empirically, they got four weeks of Cipro because they might have a subclinical infection, and then they would come back and get the PSA drawn. It's in choosing wisely not to do it. If you think they have an infection, prove it. Um, we did a randomized trial showing two weeks doesn't do any harm. No one believed us. Uh, we got yelled at at some conferences. You didn't give enough. Uh, someone did a trial with six weeks. Um, we now know it also does harm, obviously, by giving people unnecessary antibiotics. Uh, Dr. Carlson's contributed to this space with wonderful data that I quote all the time, and I literally use it, you know, every single time in clinic. Baseline PSA to risk stratify. So um, before BPH can be a confounder, there's signal and noise in the PSA, and you get a lot more, a richer signal um, earlier on. So I know these median PSAs off the top of my head, but men in their 40s, 50s, and even 60, you should know what the median PSA is. Again, walking you through a really powerful but somewhat complicated slide. These are men in their 40s. The gray is the distribution of their baseline PSA. Almost all of them are in a quote-unquote normal range. But within that normal range, there's a lot of power in predicting events decades down the road. And those lines that you see there, I believe, are 25 years down the road on the likelihood of certain things happening. And these are men that were ultimate, and these are you know, real events that can happen, but obviously early on you have a pretty good signal who's at higher risk or who's at lower risk. It's a very powerful biomarker over the subsequent few decades. Uh, PSA velocity for a long time was all the rage. It makes a lot of intuitive sense. You know, the PSA jumps a lot. They must have a cancer. PSA is ultimately a biomarker for cancer. Um, however, the cool thing about doing studies is trying to see if that's actually true or not, and it isn't. So this is, you know, some of the earlier stuff, and you can see the higher your PSA velocity is on those figures, the more likely you have prostatitis on biopsy or inflammation rather than cancer. And then in really well-done large studies, They've looked at the, the um, trials, both in the U.S., in the PCPT trial, thousands of men. Your base model of what you know about the man, likelihood of finding prostate cancer, add on the PSA velocity, it doesn't add to your predictive power. So your base model, um, you know, enrich that, but PSA velocity, in my opinion, should rarely, if ever, be the sole indication for a biopsy. And the reason for that is, PSA and PSA velocity are so co-associated um, that in some of the original studies, PSA velocity seemed to be a signal. They showed the same thing in Europe. I'm not going to walk you through the, the figure there except the take-home messages um, when using statistics to try to predict your ability uh, to find a real cancer. PSA velocity dropped out. The power of free PSA, uh, it's cheap, it's easily accessible, it's incredibly powerful. These commercially available biomarkers like 4K score and Phi, the main power behind it is the total PSA and the free PSA, and quite frankly, with a mildly elevated PSA, the free PSA is actually more powerful than the total PSA. So if you had to tell me which one I wanted for myself in that range, for a mildly elevated PSA, give me the percent free PSA. I rarely, if ever, have ordered a 4K score or a Phi. 
because the free PSA is embedded in there. We get it free, um, and I use it. Now, once someone's diagnosed with prostate cancer and they're on surveillance or they're considering treatment, free PSA has not been shown to be helpful, so I don't routinely get it afterwards. But in basically every single screening decision, I get it. There's risk calculators online, um, easily accessible in clinics. And this is but one example of many example, you know, in the guidelines suggesting to use some of these calculators. And to me, this is the ultimate shared decision making. You can give someone a percent likelihood of finding a potentially treatable cancer. And this is for a hypothetical 65-year-old man you know, with a mildly elevated PSA, no other meaningful risk factors. But look at what the distribution is based on these free PSAs your range of finding a grade group two or higher can go between basically you know, 10% and 50%. That's really powerful information in my book. Uh, PSA density, there's not a standalone um, guideline statement on it, but I looked through and we mentioned it 12 different times in the guidelines. And you'll know why after I show you this figure. It's extraordinarily powerful. So going back to the Swedes who have told, that taught us so much about prostate cancer and how they put together their figures, the gray is the distribution of PSA density you know, in these 5,000 men. And then that red line is what you're trying to find, you know, grade group two or higher. You can't draw this any better. PSA density is directly and powerfully and strongly, strongly associated with finding grade group two. So PSA density, obviously, if they've had an MRI or an ultrasound previously, you've got a pretty good idea. But quite frankly, I think the major benefit of the DRE is you have a pretty darn good idea what the prostate size is. Yeah, you're, you're not going to be um, you know, entirely accurate, but you got a ballpark view. And it's kind of a fun game with you know, residents and fellows. And try, we all come back into the workroom and try to estimate what the size was and if they've had something done earlier. You know, with an ultrasound or an MRI, you can start benchmarking it and start gauging where you are. But I use this every single clinic. So no one to stop screening based on age and PSA, and Dr. Carlson's going to get into this as well and has contributed some of the data in this space. And this is, a, you know, a really important message from the guidelines. You know, dialing back and discontinuing screening, in my opinion, is a gift to most men because they don't have to undergo you know, ongoing screening and some of the downstream effects that might come from it with you know, nominal value. So the median PSA at age 60 is about one. And half the guys, obviously, are going to be lower than that. And in an unscreened population, 25 years down the road, their likelihood of getting metastatic prostate cancer was 0.5% and dying from prostate cancer was 0.2%. So yes, it can happen. But if your PSA is less than one at that age, I would argue they should either stop screening or if you want to be really aggressive, tell them to get another PSA in five years. Dr. Carlson's also published on you know, what your PSA is at age 60, even when it's a little bit higher. And looking at models from you know, different regions of Sweden, there does not appear to be a benefit to ongoing screening if the PSA is less than two. But if it's greater than two, wow, it's really powerful. And that's about as good as you're going to see for the number needed to diagnose to save a life. So this is the summary of the things that I you know, walk through. I use these all the time. I find them really useful. And then lastly, with DRE, uh, it was interesting because we all know there can be potential value to DRE, but the yield of it is pretty low. And when you look to the raw data and studies, 
it's pretty humbling. You know, there's not tremendous value. There is some value. And I kind of pulled out all the relevant statements from the raw data and from the guidelines and trying to be beholden to the data, you know, rather than just what we think is true. You know, the, the team put together that guideline statement. And really, for people with a mildly elevated PSA, it, uh, you know, an abnormal DRE does improve the positive predictive value of finding a, a prostate cancer. But in people with a really low PSA, it's hard to find data suggesting it has value. I still do it when I screen people. It's not necessarily every time I see them. But again, I think the most common thing I get from it is the size of their prostate. If they have a melon versus a peanut of a prostate, and they have a mildly elevated PSA, to me that's a game changer. I'm a lot more concerned about someone who's got a puny prostate rather than a prostate that very easily explains their mildly elevated PSA. So that's what the DRE data is, and uh, <coughs> I'm gonna turn it over to my colleagues for their parts. Are we doing questions after each? <coughs> a little okay. bit later, a okay. little bit later. Um, so next is Dr. Carlson from Memorial Sloan Kettering. I'm talking about PSA, PSA isoforms, and risk calculators. Thank you so much. Thank you, Dan. Thank you, sure. Scott. So uh, let's dive a little bit deeper into the PSA and isoforms and risk calculators and look more uh, at the statements in our new guideline that was just released three days ago. So the first uh, principle and the first statement in our guideline is to emphasize shared decision-making. And why do we do that? Well, prostate cancer screening is a preference-sensitive decision. It's not like uh, when you have appendicitis, you have to take it out, or the bone is broken, you have to fix it. But here, really, it comes down to a man's preferences and values. So it's important to at least have some sort of discussion before drawing the blood. And what that needs to entail can be you know, all up to you in whatever way you want to do it, but at least involve the patient and uh, share the information and uh, come to a consensus agreement with the patient. And still, uh, the PSA test is the best that we have. Um, I don't know of any tumor marker that is as good as the PSA test to detect prostate cancer. Uh, so at this time of our evidence review, we still recommend the PSA as the first screening test. Um, and that comes from the randomized trials that I have been an investigator of for almost 20 years, the ERSBC and the Yotaboy trial. And then we have the PLCO here in the US. And as you know, many men had PSA tests in both arms of the trial. But if you take this into account, also the PLCO trial shows that regular PSA testing reduces prostate cancer mortality by about 30% when you take these trials uh, together. Uh, the only other marker in our review that is a first-line uh, test is the Stockholm 3 test that has been studied in, in Sweden. And it's a multiplex test that combines the isoforms of PSA together with clinical information, age, family history, prior biopsy, and also genetics. And it puts it all into a risk prediction model that gives us a score of having high-grade cancer on prostate biopsy. And you can combine this test with MRI, and doing so has been shown in this uh, trial that was published by uh, uh, Martin Eklund, that you can reduce uh, overdiagnosis and, and number of unnecessary biopsies using this sort of combined risk stratified uh, strategy. 
And what about genetics? Can we use that? And that's been studied also as a kind of a first-line screening test. Um, in the Stockholm uh, 3 test, it adds uh, only about 1% to the area under the curve or the predictive accuracy. So it does add some information and it might be helpful for a proportion of men at increased risk. Um, the barcode one trial was a trial in the UK, feasibility of using germline testing as for prostate cancer screening, but it had a fairly low uptake, so not much interest uh, in this um, population or in this study. And another downside of using these um, single nucleotide polymorphisms or uh, polygenic risk scores is that they can help find prostate cancer, but doesn't discriminate as well for uh, between aggressive and indolent disease. And that's really the, the heart of prostate cancer screening, that we want to find the high-grade disease. So um, unlike a PSA, um, the polygenic risk score does not really show a strong association with lethal disease and, and the, the outcomes that we really truly care about. And although it can be used, and there's some utility um, that it can reduce the risk of overdiagnosis if you have a high polygenic risk score. But at this time, there's really um, little evidence to mandate which of these panels and which of these nucleotides uh, scores that you should uh, use. Um, and there are many that you can combine. So more, more on this to come in the coming years. And then the, the third statement is about uh, repeating the PSA that um, Dr. Egener mentioned, and this is based on the uh, landmark study by Dr. Eastham, that you can see that the PSA has a tendency to fluctuate, and you've all seen this in your clinics, with men coming with PSAs jumping up and down. And if you base a decision to biopsy based on just one PSA, there might be a lot of unnecessary biopsies. And it's very easy to just repeat the PSA test in a couple of weeks. And if you do so, you can see that about 40% will have returned to normal values. So that's a very easy principle to incorporate. We also reviewed age-specific thresholds for prostate biopsies, and although this is nothing that we you know, really mandate, this can be seen as, as guidelines. So with increasing age, you can consider uh, having a higher threshold for biopsy. And so then what about the starting age? And that's something that we discussed at length in the panel. Should it be 40, should it be 45, 50, 55? So in the European trial, we screened men from 50 to 270, and ERSBC started at 55. But we also know that there's a lot of observational studies uh, on the use of baseline PSA in early midlife starting at 45. So the consensus in the guideline committee was to recommend having a discussion about screening starting between 45 and 50. And we saw Scott Egner presenting the medium PSA levels for each decade. And baseline PSA is, is a very, very strong predictor of lethal prostate cancer. It's actually a stronger risk factor than family history and race. So once you know a man's PSA, you have a lot of information. What about starting uh, at 45 between, or 50? So uh, the question is, how many prostate cancers would have progressed in the interim, or could you wait to start until 50? And that is the question that's being looked at in the pro-based trial, which is a study led by Peter Albers and colleagues in Germany, and that's ongoing right now. Uh, it's a, a large study of over 20,000 men, but um, as you know, these are young men, and the, again, the participation rate was low, so not much enthusiasm for screening in this young population, and about a third of them who had an indication for biopsy refused biopsy. And as you can see, the prevalence of prostate cancer in this very young cohort is low, so it was about 0.02% uh, 
of, of prostate cancer. So the question is really out there, can you wait with starting at 50? But yet, our recommendation is to initiate the conversation somewhere between ages 45 and 50. And then um, looking at high-risk high men with a, an increased risk, so black ancestry, germline mutations, and strong family history, then there is strong consensus that we should start screening earlier, so considering having these conversations between 40 and 45. And again, also uh, considering having a shorter rescreening interval. So instead of two to four years, you could perhaps consider a one-year screening interval. And the two to four years really comes from the USBC trial, and that's level one evidence from a randomized trial that having this frequency of PSA testing is associated with a reduction in prostate cancer mortality. And so what happens with the numbers needed to screen and diagnose to prevent one death from prostate cancer? So you've all seen these numbers, and the longer the trials have been ongoing, the lower these numbers become. And if you look at the lifetime horizon, uh, the number needed to diagnose to prevent one death from prostate cancer is about five. So uh, the numbers become favorable with longer follow-up, and that's what's to be expected for a disease that is usually slow-growing. And then in terms of the screening interval, you know, two to four can be sort of the uh, norm, but that can be um, personalized based on a man's age, his preference, the PSA values, and, and other, um, his general health. So we, we leave this up to you as clinicians to decide how often and when to screen and use clinical judgment. And, and as Dr. Egden mentioned, it can be prolonged for men who are older and have a lower PSA. And again, uh, this comes from the a Baltimore longitudinal study of aging. So if a man is 75 and has a PSA less than three, they're very unlikely to be diagnosed with aggressive disease. So it's sort of a ticket to freedom, if you will, that uh, you can consider uh, stopping screening for, for these men. And in terms of early cessation at age 60, if PSA is less than one, that's something that we've shown in the Malmö study in Sweden. And so why we recommend this is because you can see over 20 years of follow-up, the risk of developing um, metastatic or lethal prostate cancer is very, very low, 0.2% uh, over this follow-up. So if you were to stop screening, it's very unlikely that anything bad would happen in the future to these men. But, but still, they might give some reassurance to, as Dr. Egnan mentioned, you can consider checking the PSA again, say, in five years, just to have that, that reassurance, if you will. And we can also be confident in knowing that baseline PSA captures aggressive disease as well in black men as in white men with similar PSA distributions, as been shown in multiple studies. What about risk calculators? So they're simple and easy to use, cheap, available online, and it's important to use the risk calculator that's been uh, developed in the population that you're in. So for example, in Europe, there's the ESPC risk calculator, um, and here in the US, we often use the PCPT risk calculators, uh, and then there are others, there's one by Chan, and then there's the prostate biopsy collaborative group uh, risk calculator as well. And they um, use uh, similar, but also some different variables that go into them. And then what about the biomarkers? So uh, this slides I keep updating it every year. So we used to have only the PSA, but now we, there's been an explosion of new biomarkers on the market. And uh, of course, also the MRI, that is the new kid on the block, and it's made major headways in the last few years. And Dr. Wei um, nicely summarized this table in our guideline that you can read um, 
after this course, and looking at the, the comparison between the different biomarkers that are available to use. And so what about MRI? So that's been uh, before biopsy. Uh, that has been studied and is being studied in, in screening trials in Europe. So this is the Göteborg 2 trial that came after the Göteborg 1 trial. And that combines the PSA test followed by MRI. And the different groups here is that the experimental group, um, only targeted biopsy was performed to suspicious lesions. And then in the reference group, these men also had a systematic biopsy. And so uh, the participation rate was fairly high still, about 50%, and uh, less than 1% of men had a PSA more than 10, and 7% had an elevated PSA more than 3, and those men went on to an MRI. And the acceptance rate for MRI and, and biopsy was very high in this trial. And so really what you can see is that combining PSA and MRI, you can keep the detection of high-grade disease. You still find the, the Gleason 3 plus 4 or higher, but you can also reduce the risk of overdiagnosis. Over you can almost halve the risk of finding Gleason 6. So that's kind of the beauty of this um, study, that you can balance the benefits and harms, similar to what was shown in the Stockholm 3 trial and also, again, reducing the risk of unnecessary biopsy. But it's also important to remember that uh, for this concept of pre-biopsy MRI to work, you really have to have the whole chain working. So uh, you need access to high-quality studies and optimal reading of the scans and then uh, access to high-quality targeted biopsy. I mean, if I were to do it in biopsy, we'd probably miss the target, but if any of these four colleagues would do it, they would hit the bullseye immediately. And then the experience of the reader who looks at the images. So it's important to know that if you see a study that says the negative predictive value is 100%, you know, that might be at a center of excellence where you have a Rolls-Royce MRI machine and very experienced readers, but they might be very different values uh, somewhere else. So it's important to know um, all of this when you look at these MRI studies. And what's also very interesting now in Europe uh, is that the EU, so the European Union, has now allocated money for um, several counties, uh, countries in Europe to study organized PSA testing uh, programs and evaluate them uh, in the different countries to see um, whether population-based screening can be initiated. And also several ongoing trials in Europe. So you heard about the pro-based trial, you heard about Göteborg 2. There's also the pro-screen trial in Finland and then uh, reimagine and MVP uh, looking at MRI for screening. And the pro-screen trial is interesting because it's kind of a risk-stratified strategy that combines the PSA test, the 4K score, and MRI. So it's kind of a, a funnel where you start with the PSA test and then some men go on to 4K and some men go on to MRI and then you do biopsy. Um, and so that trial is ongoing and we just have to be patient and wait for a couple of years before the results come out. And then looking at MRI to replace PSA, it's an interesting concept as, because we know the PSA test has a poor specificity, but the question is how many men do you need to MRI to, to find a high-grade cancer? So should it be used alone or in combination? So I think we still um, need to figure out the best way to, to roam. There might be many ways that leads to roam, but a lot of studies ongoing. It's an exciting time right now. Thank you. All right, um, we have a few minutes now to sort of digest what you've heard and ask any questions. I don't know if one of you has the app open to check for uh, questions from the, the live stream. Yes, sir, please 
if you don't mind, come to the microphone so that the people who are live streaming can also hear. First of all, amazing. Um, most of us aren't urologic oncologists, but this is what we do every day, population health. And the one thing I, just as an editorial comment, PSA screening may not be the end all be all, and you may not want to do it every year, but that's what drives patients into our office to deal with other men's health issues. They often have voiding dysfunction, they often have sexual dysfunction, but what gets them in there, frankly, is the PSA coming back year after year. So I'm not gonna biopsy the guy with the PSA of one, but I'm gonna still talk to him about his voiding symptoms, about his erectile dysfunction, and I think we are the stewards of men's health. So that's all. That's a good point. Scott, do you want to speak to that? I, I, I think it's an interesting point, although you, you can see the obvious downside of the risk of being too aggressive with those mildly elevated PSAs. I don't know if you have more to add to that. Yeah, I turned to John. I said, that's a great point. <laughs> yeah. Hi. But you don't have to check a PSA necessarily every year, but there's a lot of other value to the visit. Uh, I'm from New York. Uh, routinely, we have been giving antibiotics for a high PSA over 3.5 and 4. And now I hear that you don't give any antibiotics. They repeat it after a few weeks. Is that the standard protocol now? Because uh, we've been doing it, and I have to tell you, we may, may, may be right or wrong. But uh, we repeat the PSA after four weeks, after he finishes antibiotics for a couple of days. What is happening here is, and I think everybody knows, patients go on the internet, and they check things out on their own, and then try to tell you, of what we should be doing. And this is going on in New York area. But if you think that antibiotics are useless, we should only do PSA repeat after maybe two, three months, and if it is high. The second question is this. We have patients that PSA keeps on going up, and MRI shows RAD1, RAD2, completely normal MRI. Now, would you recommend biopsy in these guys, or would you just sit tight and do nothing? So I'll answer the first question. Um, I also have a lot of patients I call and some primary doctors that are uh, prone to give antibiotics empirically without checking urine culture. I make it a, a, a dead stop rule for my patients that I will only give them antibiotics if there's a positive urine culture. So when they call PSAs elevated, I explain to them that it is likely if we just follow your PSA and did nothing, it would, might even come down. 25 to 40% PSA is going to come back down to normal ranges. In terms of the negative biopsy, the negative MRI scenario, we'll talk about that a little bit later, but in the initial biopsy setting, our recommendation is to do a, a systematic template biopsy in someone with an elevated PSA and negative MRI if it's their first time around. If they've had a prior negative biopsy, um, then you can consider using the MRI to rule them out for a subsequent biopsy. Just in the interest of time, I'm going to say, let's take the other three questions and, and, and stop there. Um, so does that, does that get to your questions? Thank you for... Yeah, for, okay, thank you. Okay. I understand the guidelines are in regards to screening. Most of our patients who I see are, are not in a, have some sort of symptom. So is there a value of PSA velocity for a symptomatic BPH patient or a patient on testosterone therapy. Thank you. Um, 
In terms of the the um, symptomatic patient, I don't think it's parsed that finely, although one of the calculators from Canada does include voiding symptoms, which, you know, the higher your, your voiding symptom score, the worse your voiding symptoms, the lower your probability of finding a clinically significant prostate cancer, presumably because the PSA elevation is due to enlarged prostate. Um, as far as what to do with men whose PSA goes up on testosterone, it's a tricky question, but I think, uh, I think um, in the absence of data using a standard PSA threshold for biopsy makes sense. I don't know if you all have a different response to that. So in other words, if they go on testosterone and their PSA comes up above your threshold, whether that's three or three and a half or four, um, that should trigger uh, further evaluation. Any other thoughts on that? Yeah, the way I think about the testosterone replacement is you're really making someone who's hypogonadal, bringing them back to normal ranges. So if their PSA, when their testosterone is at normal ranges, meets your threshold, then do a biopsy. So. Okay. Thank you. Rapid fire on the next two so we can be uh, remain on time. We're doing yeah, great. So just a quick question about the PCPT calculator. I use it a lot, too, and it categorizes everything as low risk or high risk. I've kind of interpreted that as low risk is clinically insignificant and high is clinically significant. Is that right? It's a tricky question. We in the guideline, the, what they're using there is grade group two or above okay. and calling it high grade. I, I wish, and this is what I tell my trainees, that it wasn't just green and red, but yeah. green, yellow, and red, yeah. because many of the three plus fours are still observable. Yeah. Um, but what they're doing with that calculator, and by the way, the PBCG calculator sort of replaces the PCPT calculator. It tends to estimate higher probabilities, uh, but just be aware that one has sort of supplanted the other. Um, uh, but they're, they're predicting either low grade, meaning grade group one, or grade group two and above. And, and again, you're right that we kind of wish we had a middle ground there where we could say, well, you know, your chance of having a, a, um, a middling kind of uh, prostate cancer that we may be able to watch is, is this. So. And very quickly, something I also struggle with is I inherit a lot of patients who are on 5-alpha reductase inhibitors that I would normally say stop screening because you're 75, you're diabetic, and got, you know, four coronary stents. Does that change your calculus at all if they are on that and their PSA is, you know, two and a half, three, <laughs> in that situation, would you keep checking it because they are on the medication? Yeah, so this is a patient uh, with multiple comorbidities. Uh, he's on finasteride. Uh, PSA is seemingly normal. What I do in practice is I double the PSA, goes into a little elevated range. I look at the guy, I go, you're still too frail, your life expectancy is still too low for me to screen, and I wouldn't screen that individual. I think the complexity, if I can just add, is that some of the, um, some of the secondary biomarkers, which I use not uncommonly in a setting where I want to convince somebody not to proceed with the biopsy, some of the secondary biomarkers use PSA in their calculation and don't take into account the finasteride. The PCPT did, but the other ones don't. So you have to sort of, uh, the, in other words, the risk calculator does, but the biomarkers sometimes don't. And, and so the estimates from the biomarkers can be skewed because of that. Okay. Pyrides one or two on MRI, P 
PSA remains stable. You never did a biopsy. When do you get another MRI? I don't think we have an answer for that. Okay. But, um, but we'll talk more about MRI and how to use it in, in the, one of the upcoming segments. Right. Thanks. Okay. All right. Next speaker is Dr. Simpa Salami, who's going to talk about some of these commercial um, biomarkers. And then subsequently, we'll talk about uh, the important area of germline testing. Thanks, Dr. Barokas, uh, for your leadership and the opportunity to participate in this course today. Uh, these are my disclosures. Uh, they have no relevance to the talk that I'll be presenting today. And of course, I, I serve on the AUA uh, Prostate Cancer Lead Detection Guideline Panel as well as the, the NCCN. So in this part of the, the course, we'll review the rationale for doing biomarker testing for early detection in prostate cancer. Uh, we'll go over some of the biomarkers that are available, that are obtainable in blood, urine, and tissue. Then we'll review the guideline recommendations, and then the second part of my talk will be focused on germline genetics uh, testing. A biomarker essentially is any molecule that is found in blood or body fluid, such as urine, or tissue that is a sign of a normal process or a sign of abnormal process, a sign of disease. Before ordering any biomarker test, a patient is before you in clinic, I think that there are some important principles that we, a provider should follow. Uh, one key one is, why are you getting the test? Is the test going to change what you do? Uh, patients and providers often want a test that will tell them whether a disease is present or absent, uh, positive or negative, but these biomarkers out there do not really uh, give us um, a direct answer, so to speak. They give you a percentage risk or a score, and then you and your patient have to decide at what threshold you, you take action. So it is important that the provider and the patient decide on an action plan before this biomarker test is actually ordered uh, as part of the evaluation for, uh, for prostate cancer. And of course, it is important not to order too many tests or order tests reflexively. Uh, think about how it will impact uh, the patient's care before you order the test. There are a number of biomarkers that are available for use in the localized prostate cancer continuum. So today we'll focus on the early detection biomarkers. Uh, my colleagues have already uh, discussed um, some of the blood-based biomarkers, uh, PSA and PSA isoforms. So I I'll focus on two uh, in particular, and that's uh, PHI and 4K score under this section. Uh, prostate Health Index or PHI is obtainable in blood. It's an FDA-approved test uh, for patients uh, with a PSA of four to 10, that's the range. Outside this range, is not, there's no data to support uh, it, its use. Uh, the threshold that has been uh, proposed is a FI score of less than 25. Patients with this score uh, are less likely to have prostate cancer. They are also less likely to have an aggressive form of prostate cancer. And FI score actually outperforms any of the individual components that went into uh, the composition of this, of this test. A 4K score is a combination of four different calicrines, uh, total PSA, percent PSA, intact PSA, as well as human calicrine 2. Uh, 4K score uh, actually combines these four different calicrines into uh, a model incorporating age, DRE findings, as well as uh, prior biopsy in a patient undergoing, uh, in a patient being evaluated for, for repeat biopsy. It is not FDA approved. And in this uh, seminal paper that was published um, about uh, almost 10 years ago, the full model com combining the four, case, uh, four calicrines and the clinical pathology parameters actually outperforms any of uh, the, the model throwing out each of the individual components. Uh, 
And this is a classic example of how the threshold that, that you choose uh, for action can impact the performance of, of the test. Uh, for example, in the table that you see above, uh, on top of the slide, you see that different thresholds, uh, the, the four case score have uh, different performance characteristic. And when you look at a threshold of uh, more than 9% or more as uh, a threshold for proceeding with biopsy, you'll be able to avoid 43% of prostate biopsies, uh, missing only 2.4% of high-grade prostate cancer. So for this test, for example, you have to discuss with your patient uh, what threshold would you decide to pursue a prostate biopsy. Uh, we'll move on now to a urine-based test. Uh, the very first uh, urine-based test uh, to be introduced into practice was PCA3. PCA3 is a long non-coding RNA that is, uh, that is um, acid in urine, urine that is obtained after an attentive uh, prostate exam or prostate massage. Uh, PCA3 is FDA approved for use in patients after a prior negative uh, prostate biopsy. Uh, in this uh, seminal work by uh, Dr. Wei and others, in a large cohort of men of nearly 1,000, they found that a PCA3 threshold of less than 20 um, has a negative predictive value of 88%. Uh, they also evaluated the performance of PCA3 in addition to risk calculators that uh, have been discussed previously, for example, PCPT, and they found that adding PCA3 uh, in addition to PCPT actually outperforms uh, the performance of PCPT alone. Uh, the second uh, urine-based test is um, MPS, my prostate score, that was uh, developed at the University of Michigan. It, it incorporates uh, PCA3, Tempers 2 and serum PSA. Uh, in this work by Dr. Tosuyan and others, uh, they compared the performance of uh, MPS uh, with PSA. Uh, they looked at the capacity of, uh, of these two different tests to discriminate patients with uh, high-grade prostate cancer, defined here as grade group 2 or higher, versus benign or uh, grade group 1 disease. And you can see in the density plot to the left that PSA cannot discriminate uh, perfectly, uh, but MPS actually improved the capacity to discriminate between um, high-grade disease and benign or grade group 1. And at a threshold of um, MPS, MPS threshold of less than 10 has a high negative predictive value, uh, avoiding 33% of biopsies and missing 3% of grade group 2 disease. I think these are important uh, data that when looking at any test to determine whether you can use it in practice, that you have to uh, ask yourself uh, any particular threshold that you choose to use for action, what is the likelihood of missing high-grade disease at that threshold? Uh, the third test is um, ExoDX. Uh, this is uh, a measure of exosomes, small fragments of cells that are isolated from uh, first catch urine. Unlike other urine-based tests, this particular test does not require a DRE. Uh, it assesses uh, three different exosomes, SPDF, ERG, and PCA3. And this test is correlated with uh, the capacity of detecting grade group 2 disease or higher at the time of prostate biopsy. Uh, in this work that was published um, about uh, eight years ago, uh, they, they found that uh, using a threshold of 15.6 or greater as a threshold for proceeding with uh, prostate biopsy, you can avoid 20% uh, of negative biopsies, missing only 2% uh, of grade group 2 disease, and at this threshold, uh, no tumors uh, grade group 3 or higher was actually missed at the time of biopsy. Uh, the fourth and final urine test that we consider is select MDS. This is a combination of two different uh, molecules, DLX1 and HOT C6. Uh, this test is not FDA approved. Uh, incorporating this test in a model uh, encompassing clinical pathology parameters has an area under cover of uh, 0.90 for identifying patients uh, with uh, high-grade prostate cancer.
And there's some other emerging biomarker tests out there. Uh, one example is MPS2, which is actually an improvement over MPS that we just considered uh, that would include up to 50 different molecules. Uh, there's uh, a urine process seek, UP seek, that was uh, developed at the University of Michigan, still under investigation, a 15 transcript model. And uh, we, we uh, heard about uh, SH. Uh, LM3, which is a combination of uh, clinical factors, uh, clarigrins, and pulgenic risk scores. And certainly, they're also circulating uh, microRNA that are still under investigation. I think Vanderbilt gets some credit for MPS2 also. Absolutely. <laughs> Dr. Soyan was a fellow with us at the University of Michigan and uh, now at uh, Vanderbilt, uh, who is really uh, leading uh, this work uh, with Dr. Arul Shanayan at the University of Michigan. And then lastly, uh, confirm MDX. Uh, this is uh, the only tissue-based test available in the uh, pre-prostate cancer setting, in the diagnostic setting. Uh, it is only useful in patients with prior negative biopsy because you actually need the negative biopsy tissue to assess uh, these uh, three different molecules. And, and the concept of this test is that there are molecular changes in normal prostate cells that may occur before the histologic appearance of prostate cancer itself. So if you were to biopsy a patient with uh, a negative biopsy with ongoing suspicion for prostate cancer, uh, assessing this, uh, the methylation status of these three different genes can inform you if there was cancer somewhere in the prostate that was missed at the time of biopsy. So in this uh, work, uh, the, the work that really led to the development of this test, uh, they found that when, you, when they uh, repeated a biopsy 30 months after the initial biopsy and then assessed confirmed MDX uh, from the initial biopsy, it, it actually had a, a high negative predictive value of 90% uh, of identifying patients who may have a high-risk uh, prostate cancer. And by using this test, they, they determined that you can reduce the risk of repeat biopsy uh, by 64%. So just to summarize and put things into context, in what clinical settings can we use uh, each of these different biomarkers that we discussed? Uh, 4K score and phi score and phi can be used in the initial and repeat biopsy uh, setting. MPS and exoDS, same in the initial and repeat biopsy setting. And select MDS, that is data only in the initial biopsy setting. And uh, PCA3 and confirm MDX in the repeat biopsy setting. That's, that's fantastic. Um, I, yeah. I want to add one thing, and I know Scott has something to add. What you notice about these tests is that they're developed. We, we find molecules or, or uh, markers that uh, distinguish between higher-grade prostate cancer and low-grade or no cancer. But then they pick a threshold, um, and they pick the threshold intentionally to have a high negative predictive value. These are rule-out tests. In other words, we're gonna, if, if the test comes back negative, we're gonna avoid a biopsy. And so you have to have good faith in the negative predictive value. Um, and, and as Dr. Salami said, you wouldn't use this unless it's gonna change your management. If you have a 45-year-old man with a PSA of six and a half uh, and a small prostate, you're probably gonna biopsy that patient. And in, in, in that situation, it's not necessary to get this test. Um, so it's just, it, this takes a little bit more cognition than, than just interpreting a PSA. I had one brief comment, but now I have a second brief comment. Um, uh, I try to drill into our trainees' head, and they're probably so sick of me saying this, to try to get away from cut points and thresholds. Biology and oncology don't work that way. Our brains want to, just simple kind of green light, red lights. But I would ask you, you know, what, 
what makes someone a good, what's the cut point for a good free throw shooter, or how tall is tall. I mean, it's all a continuum, and it's important to know that. The second thing, which I meant to mention in my talk, but Dr. Salami uh, reminded me by when he has the phi. So phi is a good test, the prostate health index, and free PSA, I told you my thoughts on free PSA. The problem I have that we're trying to make some headway on is when it reports out in our laboratory and when phi reports out, um, all they do is likelihood of any cancer on biopsy. So particularly in an era in EMRs when patients are seeing it, it dramatically overestimates the likelihood of what I would call the, you know, the real cancers we're trying to find. So it, at our lab, we talked to the chemistry head within the last couple months, and we got them to get rid of those tables of finding any cancer. And he encouraged us, and we just submitted a paper to a, like a clinical chemistry journal where all the like lab people read, encouraging people to do the same for, for phi and for free PSA. And I, I will quickly highlight, you know, the guideline statements here. A couple of statements um, in the initial uh, biopsy setting uh, that clinicians may, may use adjunctive urine or serum biomarkers when further risk stratification will influence the decision regarding whether to proceed with biopsy. Essentially, only order the test if it's going to change, you know, what you do is an, is optional. It shouldn't be ordered reflexively. And then the second uh, guideline statement is in the negative biopsy uh, setting. Uh, this should be used selectively for, for that risk stratification, only if you will change what you would do substantively. And, and these guideline statements are consistent with other guidelines as well, uh, with the EAU guidelines, and that's really because they, at, at present there's not significant data to uh, implement the use of these biomarkers for routine screening for prostate cancer. Same is true uh, of the NCCN. They should be considered not to be uh, done routinely um, in, in these patients. Okay, so the second part of the talk is uh, germline genetic testing. Um, when uh, you see a patient that you're considering germline genetic testing for men, it's important to ask again, you know, why are you doing it? For risk, it could be done for risk assessment to de determine uh, the risk of developing the disease. Uh, it could be uh, ordered to inform prevention strategies in some cancers, for example. Uh, it could inform prognosis. Uh, patients with prostate cancer with some of these germline uh, alterations may have a more aggressive disease. Uh, it could be used for treatment selection. Uh, there's some targeted therapies like uh, PARP inhibitors that could be useful uh, for patients with uh, some um, uh, DNA damage repair uh, alterations. And it could also inform uh, cascade screening in family members of patients with prostate cancer. Uh, majority of prostate cancers are sporadic, about 70 to 80 percent, there's no exact cause that is, that is known, but about 5 percent of prostate cancer are actually uh, hereditary, meaning that there are specific alterations in some genes that put those patients at risk of developing prostate cancer, uh, genes like BRCA1, BRCA2, the Lynch syndrome mutations, as well as HOTSP13. Uh, it is estimated that uh, a patient uh, with BRCA2 alteration, for example, has an 8.6-fold increased risk of developing prostate cancer by the age of 65. And these patients are more likely to have aggressive prostate cancer, uh, grade group 4 or higher, have no positive disease, or uh, poor survival. And having these alterations also may inform you uh, what other cancers uh, should be screened for. For example, breast, ovarian, or pancreatic cancer, Lynch syndrome, for example, uh, colon cancer in Lynch syndrome. Uh, how prevalent are uh, these germline alterations? This is a seminal paper that was published uh, in 2019. It is retrospective, so there's potential for selection bias. Uh, we estimated that 17% of patients with uh, prostate, localized prostate cancer actually have 
uh, a germline variance. And uh, if you were to apply uh, the NCCN criteria at the time to identify patients for genetic testing, 37% of those who had a variant would not have undergone a genetic testing. <laughs> and this distribution here is very similar also to the distribution of germline alterations that is identified in patients with metastatic disease as shown uh, to the right in, the, in that pie chart. So the current NCCN guidelines recommends uh, germline testing in patients with low or intermediate risk disease if there is a strong family history of prostate cancer or introductal or cribriform histology. And in patients with high-risk prostate cancer, it is recommended. And doing germline uh, testing evaluation really begins with uh, taking a very detailed uh, family history. Uh, it's important you know, to ask the who, the primary or secondary uh, fa family members uh, with uh, prostate cancer, the what, uh, the prostate cancer, and other cancers like breast, ovarian, pancreatic cancer, and when, how old were they when they were diagnosed with cancer, because that may inform when you begin screening uh, for prostate cancer, and uh, what kind of cancer was it? Was it metastatic at the time of diagnosis? Uh, did it die from the prostate cancer? That could also inform your strategies uh, for screening. And what do you test? There are a variety of panels that are out there uh, for testing. Uh, some of them are more focused than others. Some incorporate up to like five or six genes. Some are focused specifically on prostate cancer, and some are focused on many cancers. So I think here it's important to determine what is available to you uh, locally and what your genetic counselors um, would recommend. And it's also important to be able to have the support system to, to counsel patients on uh, the findings that you get from, from this test. That should inform what test you order uh, in any given scenario. Uh, with respect to prostate cancer, uh, any germline test that you order should include the basic ones for prostate cancer like BRCA1 or BRCA2, ATM, CHECK2, the Lynch syndrome mutations, and HOXP13. And what do you test? There are, again, um, a number of specimens that can be obtained for this testing. Blood, saliva, or buccal swab can be used, and there are a variety of companies out there. So it's important to see what your institution uh, supports, what you have access to. And cost also should be taken into consideration when ordering this test. Will it be covered by insurance? Uh, and if it's not covered, how much will the out-of-pocket cost uh, be? And certainly, if you do germline genetic testing and find uh, a variant that is positive, there's certainly no reason to do uh, somatic testing in, in that situation. I put a slide on here just to highlight the fact that you can have um, a clinician or a provider-directed germline genetic testing program. You could also have a genetic counselor-directed uh, program, but ideally you want to have a genetic counselor working with you together in identifying the patients, who to test, what to test, and uh, discussing the results with the patient. But in particular, the last two bullet points, what screening recommendations for other cancers uh, should be made, and, uh, and identifying other family members that should undergo cascade testing. I think it's important to have um, a genetic counselor as part of your program, uh, have the patients follow up with genetic counselor to discuss their risk and, and identify strategies for mitigating uh, that risk. So just to conclude, uh, the, the two talks that I gave, uh, I think it's important to know what biomarkers are available uh, for early detection understand what information they provide, and as mentioned earlier, ensure that the biomarker that you're using is actually helping you to improve the detection of 
high-grade prostate cancer and not just any cancer, know what the performance characteristics are, the negative predictive value in particular, uh, consider what information it will provide that will alter your management of the patient, and, uh, and certainly do not offer, uh, do not order tests reflexively, and do not order too many tests, otherwise you have many test results to, 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 to worry about and interpret, and as the technology to identify and validate these biomarkers continue to improve, biomarkers will continue to be discovered and proliferate. So we have to be familiar and keep up with the emerging data and see how we can apply them clinically. Thank you. All right. Those are hard acts to follow. Um, I want to thank you all again for, for coming in um, and staying with us on a Sunday morning early. Um, only thing I wanted to add to the germline testing discussion is that, at least in our institution, there is a huge shortage of genetic counselors. So if you send someone to genetic counseling, it could be months before they get in. Um, there's certainly underuse of genetic testing, like everybody with metastatic disease should get it, everybody with high-risk disease should get it, and even some with intermediate or low-risk. Um, what we did in our institution is we set up a program where uh, we, the urologists, or the medical oncologist can order the test. We have one panel that we use commonly. It's commercially available. Worked with our geneticists to decide on which one. If that comes back positive, they get fast-tracked to a, a genetic counseling visit. So that's just one way to do it. Um, I'm going to shift gears and talk about the role of MRI. I'll try to be quick. I think most people are familiar with this. and, and you know, when we started this course, most people weren't. So I think, I think we can run through it quickly. The goal is just to explain and implement the AUA guidelines regarding uh, use of MRI in the initial biopsy setting and repeat biopsy setting. Why do we use MRI? Because finger-guided biopsies are, are not great. And even ultrasound-guided biopsies um, often fail to detect the area that's cancer. They're good for localizing where you're needle is going, but not for the identification of cancer. Uh, Micro-ultrasound is sort of coming along and, and maybe a, a solution there, but in the interim, uh, MRI sort of provides the, the, the best uh, sensitivity for high-grade disease. And those biopsies can be done in the scanner. That's pretty uncommon. Uh, they can be done with cognitive registration, meaning looking at the MRI and saying, okay, this the left mid-anterior is the, is the area of interest and then hitting that on an ultrasound-guided biopsy. It can also be done with uh, software fusion uh, between the MRI and ultrasound if you have that, um, if you have that equipment. Um, and either transperineal or transrectal approaches are reasonable when using MRI guidance. Um, why do we use it to guide biopsy? To direct biopsies at regions of suspicion. And maybe to avoid systematic biopsies, as we're hearing now more and more, um, maybe to avoid biopsy entirely in people with a negative MRI. Unlike um, the biomarkers, MRI is not calibrated to have a high negative predictive value. It's more about sensitivity. And so um, using it to, to avoid doing biopsies, and, and my colleagues uh, may disagree, but using it to avoid biopsy may have more peril than, than using the biomarkers to avoid biopsy. Um, all right, MRI in the initial biopsy setting. Let's, let's uh, 
taken in context of a case. A 58-year-old white man, excellent health, no family history, stable, mild voiding symptoms. PSA bumped up to 5.4, uh, whereas a couple of years ago it was 2.8. It was no antibiotics were given, right, Scott? Rechecked um, a couple of weeks later, 5.5. He has no nodules on digital rectal exam, and his prostate's pretty small, meaning that the uh, PSA density is, is high. No prior prostate biopsy. Um, the next step, what would we do? Observe with serial PSAs, give them antibiotics, additional biomarkers, do an MRI with a plan to do a biopsy, do an MRI with a plan to biopsy if it's positive and observe if it's negative, in other words, avoid biopsy if the MRI is negative, or biopsy without MRI prior. Um, I'm gonna take you through the guideline statements here um, and, and say that MRI is considered optional, just like the biomarkers are in this initial biopsy setting. So MRI can be used, but it's optional. Um, if the MRI is positive, okay, I'm coming back here. So the, the options that are correct on that, on that slide are additional biomarkers, MRI with a plan to do a biopsy, or biopsy without MRI prior. Notice that I've crossed off MRI with a plan to biopsy if positive and observe if negative, and I hope I have that on the next slide here. Um, may use MRI prior to initial biopsy to increase detection. Um, that's based, and I won't belabor this, but it's based on a number of high-quality studies showing high sensitivity of, of MRI for identification of, of high-grade uh, cancers. Um, this is a sort of a correlation between the PIRADS level and the chance of identifying clinically significant prostate cancer. So this is the rationale for using MRI, where you see PIRADS 4 and 5 lesions have a pretty high uh, sensitivity for finding um, high-grade disease. Uh, pyrides 3 is sort of middling. It's about the same as a standard biopsy, and pyrides 1 and 2 obviously lower. Um, notice that in the initial um, biopsy setting, if the, um, if the um, MRI is positive with the pyrides 3 or higher, we're going to do targeted biopsies. Um, and then the, the um, template biopsy is optional in that setting. If the MRI, so for biopsy-naive patients who have a suspicious lesion on MRI, patients sh uh, clinicians should perform targeted biopsy of the suspicious lesion and may also perform systematic template biopsy. Um, so again, the targeted biopsy is required. Systematic is optional in the setting of a positive MRI. Um, why are we doing that? Because targeted biopsy with systematic template biopsy increases the chance of finding grade group 2. Approximately 10 to 15 percent of grade group 2 cancers are found outside of the systematic cores. Um, targeted biopsy without systematic template biopsy reduces overdiagnosis of grade group 1 disease by up to 50 percent. So here there's a trade-off, right? If you avoid the systematic biopsy, you can reduce overdetection and do fewer biopsies, less harm, um, but you may miss uh, some of the grade group two or higher cancers. Often what I tell my patients with the biomarkers and with avoiding biopsy in the setting of a negative MRI is, we're still gonna check your PSA. And so this is not our last opportunity to find it, right? Usually prostate cancer grows slowly, so you, you um, you know, these, these missed cancers are potentially just delayed diagnoses that don't impact clinical 
outcome. Um, we recommend that clinicians should obtain at least two needle core biopsies per target in patients with a suspicious prostate lesion on MRI. Um, that's because a higher number of cores increases detection of grade group two, but also increases time, cost, and de detection of grade group one. Um, there's data showing that the incremental value of additional cores diminishes with more than three cores per target. Um, and one important point is that for risk stratification, let's say once you diagnose prostate cancer, um, the MRI target should count as one core. So all cores from that MRI target count as one. Um, this is an important point. If the MRI is negative in the initial biopsy setting, we recommend proceeding with a systematic template biopsy rather than avoiding biopsy in that setting. And again, this is because of that, that uh, chance that it's a false negative. Not all high-grade uh, prostate cancers show up on the MRI. And this is by distinction from what you'll see in a moment. The repeat biopsy setting makes the systematic biopsy optional for MRI negative uh, scenario. So why do we do that? Again, the negative predictive value um, of uh, MRI is uh, around 91%, meaning roughly one in 10 men with a negative MRI have grade group two or higher prostate cancer. Systematic biopsy, if we're doing that, should include at least 12 cores distributed throughout the prostate with thorough sampling of the peripheral zone. There's no one specific recommended template. Um, so in this man, let's say he then undergoes an, an MRI which shows a PIRADS-5 lesion, left mid-peripheral zone, lateral. Um, here's an example, and I, I, I like having this up here because it's, whoops, um, can you go back one, or did I, oh, there we go. I, I like using, I like showing this because it's important for us to be able to look at an MRI and interpret it. Um, the radiologists may or may, in your area, may or may not have experience, so it's important for you to have some experience too, particularly if you're doing uh, cognitive registration. So on T2 in the upper left there, you notice you get dark uh, signal and, the, and the, the tumor area is actually marked on that one. Next I look at the, and I set my screen up exactly this way so that I can see each of the four um, uh, phases. Uh, top right is diffusion-weighted image. You notice that it's bright on, on diffusion-weighted um, because it's restricting the diffusion of water molecules, the tumor is. And then the ADC map on the lower left, um, same area shows up dark. Um, so those are all hallmark uh, findings for Pyrex 5. Difference between Pyrex 4 and 5 is typically size. Um, and you can see also on the, the lower right panel, the dynamic contrast enhanced, you get early um, contrast enhancement, so it shows up bright. That's, I find, the least helpful one. Um, but it, it is really important to be able to interpret your own MRI. Um, so he undergoes a transperineal biopsy with cognitive fusion, uh, showing grade group four, four in three of three cores from the region of interest. Remember, that's going to in our risk stratification we count as one of one. Um, and gray group three and four out of 12 of the systematic cores all on that left side. Um, all right, what are we doing after the initial biopsy is negative? So this is in, in a patient who comes in, they've had a prior negative biopsy, um, they still have clinical suspicion for high-grade prostate cancer because of the PSA level or other factors. 
let's take this case example, 68-year-old African-American man, excellent health. His father had prostate cancer, uh, diagnosed relatively early in life. He has no urinary symptoms. PSA is 10.3, no nodules on exam, 50-gram prostate. Um, he had a prior systematic template biopsy that was negative. What's the next step here? Um, this is the, the algorithm, that third figure on your handout, um, where we see that in the setting of, um, of elevated risk, you see there, MRI should be performed if it has not been done previously. Um, so in patients undergoing repeat biopsy with no prior prostate MRI, clinicians should obtain a prostate MRI prior to biopsy. So in this setting, MRI is required. The biomarkers are optional, but MRI, if it hasn't been done previously, is required. And why do we say that? Because in patients with a prior negative systematic biopsy, MRI will show a suspicious target in a substantial proportion of, of men, and the biopsy will be positive for high-grade cancer in somewhere between 21 and 60 percent. Um, in the setting of a positive MRI, meaning PIRADS 3, 4, 5, um, oh, I'm sorry, let's, let's uh, back that up. So this is the other, other scenario where the MRI is negative. Clinicians may proceed with a systematic biopsy. So this is in contradistinction to the initial biopsy setting where we're going to do the biopsy even if the MRI is negative. Here in the repeat biopsy setting, we say it's optional. All right, just letting that sink in for a second because that is a, a tricky distinction. So in patients with indications for repeat biopsy who do not have a suspicion lesion on MRI, clinicians may proceed with a systematic biopsy. Repeat biopsies detect fewer and fewer lethal cancers, so second biopsy less than the first, third biopsy less than the second. And you see how that goes down. Uh, MRI can miss uh, some grade group two or higher uh, cancers, so you have to decide whether to biopsy based on other factors such as PSA density, uh, percent free PSA, other biomarkers, or a nomogram. In the setting of a suspicious MRI, clinicians should perform targeted biopsy of the suspicious lesion and may also perform systematic biopsy. So in this setting, similar to the initial biopsy setting, targeted biopsy is required, systematic uh, template biopsy is optional. Um, and again, same idea, in the repeat biopsy setting with targeted and systematic biopsies, cancer is found in the systematic biopsies 5 to 10% of the time. However, the additional biopsies add time, cost, patient discomfort, and biopsy complications. So the patient gets an MRI. If positive, we're doing the target. Systematic is optional. If negative, systematic is optional. I'm going to talk briefly about cognitive fusion versus software fusion. The, the short story is here that we did a literature review and didn't find a significant difference between the two options. Um, so we concluded that clinicians may use software registration um, for MRI ultrasound fusion if it's available. If it's not available, we're not suggesting that you shell out $250,000 to buy the unit or send them to a center of excellence. Um, cognitive fusion, if if you're good at reading the MRI, if your radiologist is good at reading the MRI, cognitive fusion should be sufficient. Um, and this is just some data to back that up. So in summary, the AUA recommendations for use of MRI in, the, um, in prostate cancer detection, uh, 
the MRI is optional in the initial biopsy setting, but required if it hasn't been done previously in the repeat biopsy setting. In the setting of a positive MRI, the targeted biopsies are required and the systematic biopsies are optional in both settings. If the MRI is negative, we're gonna recommend systematic biopsies in the initial biopsy setting, but they're optional in the repeat biopsy setting. I hope that's clear. I know that switcheroo is a little confusing. And, and if we're doing targeted biopsies, we're taking two or more biopsies per target, computer software registration or cognitive registration is fine. And that's all for my talk. Thank you very much for your attention. Um, next, I'm going to introduce Dr. John Way from University of Michigan. Feel free to sit. You all are not going to disrupt us if you, if you find yourselves a seat. And this is often the, the, the highlight of our, our course, talking about um, transperineal biopsy techniques. Thank you, Dan. All right, so we're going to go over um, how to do prostate biopsies safely, efficiently. Uh, I'm going to focus a lot on transperineal approach because that's what uh, more and more is being done. We'll touch, have a few slides about pathologic findings. I'm going to cover the AUA guidelines as it's relevant to this part of the course. But what's the safest biopsy? What do people think? Any answers? That's right. The safest biopsy is the one that we can avoid, right? And the AUA guidelines speaks to that with two uh, statements. One, it says, if the risk of significant cancer is actually low, you can forego a biopsy. I mean, don't biopsy every guy 80 years old, PSA of 4.1 that they send to you, right? It's not necessary. The other uh, guidelines uh, statement says, if a patient is, let's say, really frail, really sick, or has to have treatment right away because we know he's got metastatic cancer, again, you don't have to biopsy him right away. Now, in this later statement, there may be reason to biopsy one because maybe uh, they need tissue for some uh, genomic study or they need tissue to do some chemotherapy or some protocol or maybe for insurance purposes. It doesn't say you don't do a biopsy, just says you don't have to do a biopsy right away if someone obviously has bad cancer, say PSA is greater than 50, okay? What I tell patients about a biopsy. The first thing you have to do is tell patients why you're doing it. You want to find clinically significant disease. On the other hand, you should also inform patients that there's a significant risk of finding low-grade disease. We know this, group grade one. And you have to tell them because you say, well, if we find group grade one and that's all you got, it's not likely to hurt you at all, ever, risk of your life, rest of your life. But we're going to, to oblige you almost to do active surveillance, which means we're going to get PSAs a lot, do MRIs, do biopsies to you, and they know that's not fun, right? And you have to put it in context, help them think about what that actually means, low-grade cancer, okay? I also tell patients, eat a light meal, regular food. Don't change what you do. I don't do enemas at all, okay? I know some people are fond of doing it. I don't think it helps. Um, and certainly, if patients have renal insufficiency, you shouldn't be using a fleet enema. And I tell my patients, the older patients, the, the frail patients, come with somebody. So I don't want to be left in clinic at 6 o'clock because the patient's a little woozy. What I tell patients about potential for side effects? Well, one, uh, they'll have some discomfort, some achy discomfort between the legs for a day or so. Uh, they're going to have blood in the urine, visible blood. Don't call me. A little bit of blood's okay. Uh, for about a week, sometimes longer. Blood in the semen. I make a point of this for my younger, younger guys. It could be a month or more. Red color, brown color. Don't panic. It's normal, okay? Uh, infections. We know that uh, 
uh, E. coli resistant, cipro resistant E. coli has been going up. Uh, this is a big problem, sepsis. The overall rates, if you look at all biopsies, are as low as 0.6%, 0.5%, as high as 4.5%. There's a huge range, okay? Uh, and certainly the argument these days is using transperineal biopsy will bring you closer to the lower range, but there are other alternatives which I'm going to show you as well. Urinary symptoms can get worse after biopsy. They may have some baseline symptoms, some aggravation of the symptoms, typical, maybe 25% of men. Retention, not common, although the data does say for transperineal biopsies, urinary retention is a little common, maybe 1% or 2%. Mortality, certainly rare for any kind of biopsies, and ED, rare. Using antibiotics, and I highlight that this slide now is for transrectal approach. The goal of antibiotic prophylaxis is reduce sepsis, obviously, and I'm talking about a patient that doesn't have any risk factors, right? They're not diabetic immunosuppressed. They don't have an active UTI. Uh, the, the goal here is to reduce um, infections due to cipro-resistant E. coli, okay? Use local antibiotic resistance data when available, and you want to minimize the course of your antibiotics, 24 hours, maybe even a single dose, and for, for transperineal, we'll get to this, you don't even have to use antibiotics. Let's take a look at what the AUA guidelines for prophylactic antibiotics say about transrectal biopsies. This is their slide, and basically what it says is, well, it's a contaminated field. Gram negatives is your, your biggest problem. Use fluoroquinolone as your first line antibiotic. If you can't, let's say they're allergic, you can use cephalosporin. And if you need to, you can go to cephalos, uh, as, as trianam. And they recommend course of therapy for transrectal biopsy to be only one dose, okay, not 24 hours. Now, there are other ways to further reduce your chances of getting sepsis with a transrectal biopsy. There's augmented approach, doing a pre-rectal, uh, pre-biopsy rectal swab, dipping your needle in formalin, uh, and doing transperineal. I'm going to go over these uh, each in turn now. Rectal swab, uh, this is the idea that you can take culture swab, it's actually smaller than the one my nurse is holding. And basically, you, you take the swab, you, like you're doing a DRE, if you pull your glove out and you got some poop, that's good enough. If not, you take the swab in, gently, uh, you want to get some fecal matter on it. You send that to the lab, the test is really for cipro-resistant E. coli. If the test comes back and says there's no cipro-resistant E. coli, you use cipro, that's what AUA says to do. If the test comes back and says cipro-resistant E. coli, it'll give you a sensitivity and tell you what antibiotic to do, and that's what you want to do, okay? Now, if a, in the setting, patient comes to you for a transrectal biopsy and they didn't have rectal swab, you can do an augmented approach. And, and all that means is you use cipro and you add parenteral genomycin. For, for my clinic, it's IMGent. Give them a dose of IMGent in addition to a cipro, and that takes a place, replaces doing a rectal swab. Formalin dipping. Uh, this came out uh, quite a few years ago, 10 years ago now, uh, out of Emory. But basically, um, urologists were doing the biopsy, and rather than having someone put it into the jar, they just take the needle, they swish in the formalin dip, and then they take it out and do the biopsy again, right? Some of you may do that. Well, they found when they did that, chances of sepsis went to zero. I mean, close to zero. It was remarkable. And what they think is happening is you're actually killing the germs on the tip of the needle when you do that. So in my clinic now, I do that. We swish it in the formalin, we actually rinse it off in, in saline, and then we use the needle again, okay? So between every penetration of the rectal uh, mucosa, we dip, dip it in formalin. Special cases, there's always gonna be exceptions. What I talked about there was your routine patient. Now you have patients who may be 
uh, have diabetes, uh, the obesity, they have recent UTI sepsis. These are all reasons that you can give more antibiotics uh, or more potent antibiotics if necessary based on their sensitivities. Anticoagulation, we hate this, right? We're surgeons. It's annoying at best, uh, aspirin. Uh, personally, for me, uh, NSAIDs, I let them keep taking it, right? A lot of guys have new stents and they have to take it anyway. That's fine. I really don't notice a big difference for NSAIDs. But for antiplatelet and, and anticoags, I do uh, stop it depending on what the agent is. Sometimes you have to go to the primary care doctor and ask them for permission because you don't want to have someone get a DVT or something like that. But easily manageable. The number of times I have to admit someone for heparin or even use bridging Lovenox is rare. Moving along now, let's talk about transrectal ultrasonography. No matter which type of biopsy you're doing, you're going to use a transrectal ultrasound. Uh, you can do it imaging in side-fire, in-fire mode. My approach always is once the rectal probe is in, I begin by anesthetizing the patient. Right? You want to let the lidocaine set as long as possible before you actually do the biopsy. Right? My residents, they come and learn how to do it. First thing they do is measure the prostate, they putz around, and then they give the lidocaine. Then they're shooting them with the biopsy needle in two seconds. That's, that's not so smart. So um, a little graphic here of uh, transrectal uh, lidocaine injection. Basically what you're going to do, uh, and I go to the sagittal view here, is in the sagittal view, you're going to look at the prostate. Let me see if the, here. Give me a second here. Okay. That doesn't work. All right. Sorry about that. I'm, I'm not going to make you watch that video again. But basically, in the sagittal view, you can look at the prostate and the seminal vesicle, and you want to inject your lidocaine past the novae's fascia into that angle between the seminal vesicle and the prostate. Not into the seminal vesicle, not into the prostate, not above the seminal vesicle, into that angle. What's the uh, template? Uh, did I skip one? Yeah. Ah, okay, here's the data for uh, this randomized clinical trial showing how well uh, local anesthetic works. If you take some uh, lidocaine ointment in your, on your finger when you do the DRE, it does alleviate pain, but it alleviates pain from insertion of the rectal probe. It does not actually alleviate pain from doing the needle biopsy itself. If you do the lidocaine injection, the randomized clinical trial states it will clearly alleviate the pain of the needle penetration, uh, the biopsy needle. So we do need to do this. What template should you use? I'm going to be real brief about this. It's not the sextant template we used to use, which is three on each side, apex, mid, and base. It is now extended template, and there's different definitions for it. The one that I typically do is your sextant biopsies, apex, mid, base, paramedian. Then you go to the lateral edge of the prostate, and again, you take apex, mid, base, and just mirror it on both sides, so you get 12 cores. Some templates may say take something extra at the midline, some may say take more at the base. It doesn't matter, but the idea is more than a sextant biopsy. This is almost like a board question, right? What, what is the target for your, your uh, prostate biopsy? It's peripheral zone. Here's a heat map in the middle that takes a look at that. Most cancers are going to be in the peripheral zone. It is possible, of course, 10% they used to teach uh, in the transition zone. It's, you can't really biopsy that area well. That's why we have MRIs now. But to try to randomly pick up cancer in the transition zone is a lost cause. Now, 
transrectal sampling has its limitations. Uh, you're mostly doing peripheral zone, which is good. It's hard to reach the anterior prostate, and we often miss uh, tumors that are at apex because of how the angle comes in. So this is an advantage of transperineal biopsy. Okay, not the reason I would do it, but it is an advantage anatomically of doing a transperineal biopsy. This is uh, the cue for me to talk about the transperineal biopsy. So now most of my slides are going to be talking about how and the rationale for doing a transperineal approach. Again, we're going to talk about standard patient, not someone who's at super high risk. The antibiotic prophylactic approach is to use something that covers skin flora. I, te I tend to use Keflex, okay? You could use Doxy or some equivalent. Uh, you want to minimize uh, antibiotic use just like the other scenario, certainly less than 24 hours a dose, maybe even nothing. The latest data, and it's being presented here at, at uh, the AUA, I believe, shows that in music, which is a statewide collaborative, 95% of urologists participating, real-world data, the sepsis rate for uh, without antibiotics on a transperineal biopsy is 0.5%. The sepsis rate, if you add antibiotics, like a Keflex to it, 0.3%, obviously not different, and they're both incredibly low. It makes a strong, compelling argument you don't really need antibiotics if you do, if you do a good prep before you do a transperineal biopsy. Here's the, some anatomy uh, shots here. Uh, Netogram on the left, and then the surgical anatomy on the right. Note that behind the bulb of the uh, penis uh, in the netogram is your prostate. The entire area that we are biopsying when you do a transperineal biopsy is like this. It's really tiny. It's like a small deck of cords. You know? So when I see my residents and sticking needles and like a couple of inches away, I go, stop. You're not anywhere close to the prostate. It's actually a very small area. The, when you look at it on ultrasound, the, uh, the transverse view of the prostate looks just like if you're doing transrectal biopsy. And the sagittal view looks just like uh, transrectal. Okay? So we're used to looking at these pictures on ultrasound. Doing transperineal approach makes no difference because ultrasound pictures look virtually the same. You do need some uh, additional uh, you know, doohickeys on your ultrasound probe. We uh, are used to doing transrectal biopsy where there's a guide built into the uh, ultrasound probe and the little dotted lines on the ultrasound image for doing that biopsy. When you do a transperineal approach, most systems, for instance BNK, they don't have this built in. So you're getting an add-on device. This here is called precision point. But you want something that latches onto the probe and allows your needle guide to be in line with your ultrasound probe. So if you move your probe, the needle guide moves with you. That's what this device offers you. And there's another company. This is the one that I use, uh, made by SureMed uh, or LeapMed. Uh, same idea, another company used uh, identical. So let's talk about um, local anesthetic for transperineal approach. As far as I am concerned, this is the key to doing transperineal biopsy. If you can get this down, it's no different than doing a transrectal biopsy, okay? Uh, there's actually nice papers written on the anatomy of doing a transperineal approach by Wang et al. The idea here is you take the needle, you go numb up the skin, you reach into the, the pelvis, and you're gonna look for the levator muscle layer over your prostate. Okay? And you're actually anesthetizing your needle through the levator layer, numbing it all up from the, the, what we call the superficial fascia and the deep fascia. Okay? And when the needle tip reaches the deep fascia, you give it a good skirt, and you should see the lidocaine diffuse above and below the apex of the prostate. When you see that, you're golden. Okay? Same, then you do it on the other side. Another way of doing the biopsy, uh, doing the anesthesia you see on the image right now, I'm actually 
coming low on the levator muscle, and I'm going to inject lidocaine into the angle below the uh, levator muscle and in front of the apex. There's a little potential space there, and you can infiltrate that with lidocaine, and both of these approaches have been described, and they both can work for perineal biopsy. I'm not going to show this video uh, for the sake of time. I'm just going through the steps. If I were thinking about setting up for a transperineal biopsy, patient comes in, you put them in lithotomy. You retract the scrotum, and here I'm going to suggest don't use really sticky tape because it's going to hurt when you rip it off. Okay, No guy likes that. Use something that is tacky but not overly sticky. Uh, you retract out the scrotum, get it out of the way. You anesthetize the skin. You use a 20-gauge spinal needle, and you anesthetize the prostate just like I showed you. Then you put your uh, guide uh, that clips onto your ultrasound probe, and then you get go ahead and do your biopsy. Uh, if you wanted to see this video, I actually presented it at last year's AUA and still online as a, as a full video. Transperineal templates. Just like transrectal, we have template. Now, this, the number of studies describing these and validating these or practically none, okay? So some people came up with, and this is what we do. It comes from the days when we were doing saturation biopsies uh, for transperineal, okay? So this is sort of uh, how we derived this. The music transperineal biopsy approach uh, template is on the right-hand side of this figure. And if you can imagine, the top little pie is the apex, the bottom little pie is the base. And think of it as you go paramedian on one side, you can take a needle core of the apex, then in the exact same location, you can go a little deeper into the prostate and take a core of the base. Then I'm going to rotate my probe laterally, so I'm looking not just paramedian, but a little lateral to the paramedian. I take apex and base, and I go to the very edge of the prostate, what we used to call the anterior horn of the prostate, and take a needle core there. And then you can take one of the anterior, which is what music does here. So here's an illustration of a needle going in, transperineal, taking the apex. So the needle comes to the apex of the prostate without penetrating prostate, take a core. And then the right side image, the needle now penetrates the apex of the prostate a little bit, and then you take a core, and that reaches to the base. How far you go into the prostate depends on how big the prostate is. You got a 100-gram prostate, obviously your needle has to go in more to reach the base. You have a small little 40-gram prostate, your needle likely will go through the whole prostate, and you don't have to go in very much, if at all. So another way of uh, templating a biopsy uh, that's done out there is called the fan approach. You start with taking a uh, needle and you go paramedian, okay, in the peripheral zone. You take a core, go next to it, take another core, go next to it, take another core, and you keep sampling. It's almost like doing a saturation biopsy, but you're just doing a ring around the prostate. You keep sampling and sampling until you go up to the top of the prostate. And this gets you some transitional zone uh, samples as well but mostly what you're going to get is peripheral zone, okay? So this is also advocated uh, out there in literature. Again, we don't have literature to say this is the best way to do it, that's better. We just don't have that data. So uh, what's the, the literature? Is this really justified? Well, here's a nice uh, systematic review that Zabo published a couple of years ago. Um, and cancer detection, transperineal biopsy, 45.5% pretty similar to transrectal biopsy. Significant cancer found in 25% and complications. Here's the important one. Sepsis was 0%, okay? And they didn't use antibiotics in 10% of patients. Retention rate, 2%, that's where I got that number from. And they have also did a cost-benefit analysis showing that for system-wide, you could save Medicare $340 to $750 million a year just by avoiding sepsis using a transperineal approach. 
Okay. So um, if you look at uh, the compare transrectal biopsy approach with transperineal approach, and you're looking at does one find significant cancer more than the other, the answer is no. They're, they're going to be very comparable, hard to show difference. We do generally say that the transrectal biopsy, you're going to have more bleeding, right, because you have transrectal bleeding, uh, greater chance of sepsis, and transperineal biopsy is associated with having more pain. We actually looked at this again in the music statewide collaborative, and you could show on average, that you're going to have more pain with transperineal biopsy, and it's primarily when you do the local anesthetic. So again, the key to me is if you can get that down, do that well, then it, that practically becomes a non-issue or a very small issue. The AUA guidelines say, because the data is not great comparing transrectal and transperineal right now, that you can use either approach, and it's fine to do. So going over pathology with patients matters, okay? So key, obviously, go over results soon with your patients, and then talk to patients if they need more screening. What do the AUA guidelines say about that? Well, it says that uh, you should communicate your results with the patient, okay? Talk about their uh, risk if they, they don't find any cancer, and then talk about whether or not they want to continue screening, and then if and when that you want to do any adjunctive testing beyond that. Should the patient get more screening? Well, let's say you do a prostate biopsy, you don't find cancer, okay? The answer is if you want to do more screening, patient wants to do more screening, you have to look at their life expectancy, right? Generally more than 10 years, okay, because you need that for treatment. And uh, patient continues to have significant risk for cancer. Don't, don't cancel out screening just because they had one negative biopsy. Pathology findings, and these are things you'll often see in your pathology report, right? High-grade PIN, focal high-grade PIN, ASAP. Uh, atypia. What do they all mean? Well, high-grade pin is, think of it like a precancerous lesion. We know that if you find high-grade pin in a single needle core, let's say 1 out of 12, the risk of having significant cancer there in that scenario is no different than if they had no high-grade pin. Okay? And of course, that's an absence of ASAP or any cancer or atypia. You, all you have is unifocal high-grade pin. You do not need to repeat a prostate biopsy. There was a day when high-grade pin first came out, we'd biopsy everyone, like, every, seems like every week. That's gone, okay? Unifocal high-grade pin, you don't. It used to be a time when for multifocal high-grade pin, I would repeat biopsies somewhere down the road. And now the latest thinking is you probably don't need to do that because we have MRIs, we have biomarkers. You're more likely to just follow those patients, reassess their risk rather than repeating a biopsy. Similarly for um, uh, ASAP, okay? Think of ASAP as a not a pathologic diagnosis, but what the pathologists are telling you is they see some findings on it that could be cancer, but they don't have every single criteria checked off to call it invasive uh, carcinoma. What they're really telling you is if you have a, a real focus of cancer, maybe you just skimmed it and you didn't get them enough tissue. ASAP generally, uh, I used to re-biopsy people to make sure it's not cancer. In the guidelines today, it just says reassess their risk. Again, the data say re-biopsy someone right away isn't there. Okay, and that the same applies for uh, AIP and atypia. I think we're all familiar with group grade one. I used to have to go over this with people. I'm going to skip it. If it's group grade one, that means Gleason 6, low-risk cancer. Group grade two above is significant cancer. And most studies will use that as the cutoff. Follow-up after a negative biopsy. Can the patient be safely followed with a PSA? The AUA guideline says after a negative biopsy, don't use PSA alone. We know the positive predictive value for PSA is great if you've never had a biopsy. We use it, that's fine. But in the, 
narrowed population after a negative biopsy, that is men with cancer has been pulled out, PSA actually does not perform very well. The area in the curve is almost 50-50. You don't want to use it that. This is the role for using MRI and other biomarkers. How often should you do screening? Well, every two to four years, just like you did before. Now, there may be patients, as you follow them, they get too old, they get frail, they get their heart disease, their horrible shape, discontinue screening when that's appropriate. And how to estimate risk after a negative biopsy? Same as in the initial setting. You use a risk calculator, but make sure your risk calculator has a, uh, a place for you to enter if they had a previous biopsy before, because that is important. There's a protective effect, and you want to make sure that's accounted for in the risk calculator that you use. So in the end, uh, a lot of things are changing. It's, it's almost like it's a, it's a moving target how we do biopsies. It's kind of interesting and fun, but it's also challenging to stay on top of everything. The key take home is make sure you use appropriate antibiotics, okay? Uh, if you want to switch to a transparent new approach, it's safer. The key there is make sure you, you learn and get good at numbing someone up. I could do uh, transparent new anesthetic in like a minute or two, and I can't tell the difference if it's transrectal or transparent biopsy. Works the same. All right, I think we have some time for questions. Thank you very much. We do have just a few minutes for questions. Um, please use the microphone. It's just uh, two comments and a question. Uh, the comment number one is if you're doing um, rectal swabs, just look at the lube you're using. Some of the lubes are actually bacteriostatic that your people send to you, and uh, it invalidates the swab, so be careful. Two, if you think it's hard to do transperineal biopsies, you're wrong. It's easy to learn. If you're doing anything like Spaceor or Baragel, it's a great way to learn transperineal anatomy and how to numb people up and get it done. And you'll learn you'll never go back to transrectal. It's barbaric transrectal. The sepsis rate's too high. It's unacceptable. And then lastly, question for you about the MRIs. I get. MRIs from different sources, and these men and women are high-volume people, and I show them inter-observer, they disagree with each other all the time. Yeah. What's going on in the world of AI? Because mm. frankly, I don't trust half the stuff that they're telling me. I, I, I think you're right, there is a lot of inter-reader variability, and, and it's problematic. I, I don't know the status of AI. Um, for, for that, I, I think there are two protective measures. One is learn to read it yourself. Always look at your own films. And number two, um, you know, it's not easy to do everywhere, but where we are, we study it. We, we collect data so we know the probability of finding high-grade disease in pirates, two, you know, pirates three, four, and five, um, and we know the variability among readers. So it, it, it I think you protect yourself in that way to the extent you can. Um, I don't think AI is prime time. I don't know if anybody else knows about that. Yeah, just uh, a couple of uh, additional uh, comments. I think the other thing too about studying it is having radiology, pathology, you know, correlation, having, you know, uh, 
forum to be able to discuss and review results, especially when there are discrepancies, say Paris 5 lesion and negative biopsy, for example. Now, AI, I'm familiar with a number of groups that are working on AI. Uh, technology to be able to segment the prostate or lesions in the prostate at the NCI as well as Case Western, but certainly not ready for prime time yet. But yes, it is uh, an area that I think will benefit significantly from that um, technology. I think quick questions because they may kick us out at 9.30. Yeah, uh, yeah. Ricardo Sanchez from Puerto Rico. Hey, Ricardo. Uh, Hi, how are you, Dan? Good. Uh, great panel. Uh, I do transperineal urinf, um, and I worry about patients who are have negative targeted biopsies for parrots four and five. I put them on Advil and get an MRI six months later. But you know, what should I be doing? I mean, should we be repeating the MRI? Can they just go back to regular screening? What What do you guys do when you have a, a negative targeted biopsy? So I think I think like John was saying, we we are vigilant if they if they are real risk um, based on their PSA, family history, PSA density, percent free PSA, and the MRI is negative, that may be an opportunity to use some of these other biomarkers, particularly the tissue-based um, confirm MDX, for example, um, or, or one of the other markers should there, you know, should you determine that the risk is still high. You can use a calculator to determine that. Um, but ultimately, this is, you know, judgment-based medicine. You know, you have, to, you have to make the call that you think is correct. There are some men where you look back and you say, you know what, your biopsy was negative, but I wasn't convinced that that was a Pyrads 5. And, and your PSA is only four and a half and you're 70 years old, I think it's okay. Um, but it's th those are tricky situations. So I'll comment on that one as well. Um, you recall Dr. Carlson had a slide that showed that it's a chain. Right? And what you don't know is where is the weak link. I mean, it could be a radiologist. And what you're doing by repeating the MRI is trying to validate that that is not the weak chain, right? Does that spot still show up? The thing we control is doing the biopsy itself. And what we do at Michigan, what I tend to do is, if I have a high-risk guy and it's got pyrads four or five and I miss it, I'll send it to my partner to do a biopsy and see if they could do better. We're also starting an inboard biopsy program at Michigan, and that means the MRI biopsy is done in the scanner, and the radiologist is doing the biopsy like any other uh, um, IR procedure, and that takes out the fusion step. So the error is reduced when they do that. If you have that available, that's also a good option. All right.